As I was closing up for the night, I thought about all the movies that had been discussed in the spoiler room. That was when the temperature in the room changed. I went to the thermostat and it said it was 52 degrees KB. Suddenly I found myself in a maze of movie posters. No matter what direction I went, each path led me back to one actor, Kevin Bacon. That was when it was clear what I had to do. When I snapped out of it, I added bacon to the menu. 2020 was going to be an interesting year in the spoiler room. And welcome, my friends, yes, to another edition of the Spoiler Room. So glad you could join us today. We've got an interesting one. One, uh, for those of you who may not have picked up on it, I did have to retool my original plan for July. And so I, this one wasn't exactly on the radar, but now it is. And it is here tonight that we're going to talk about it. It depends on what you call it. It could be called It's the Rage or All the Rage. Either case, it's directed by James D. Stern, and we're talking about it tonight. So thank you for pulling up a chair. And with me, as always, the fantastic Ian Simmons, as uh, we get acclimated once more to 52 Degrees KB in the spoiler room. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm doing great, uh, even though we're getting ready to talk about all the slash itch the rage. Itch the rage? I don't know. It's, I, it's, I don't know what this movie is. The, the poster says it's the rage. The title says all the rage. And uh, there is some rage in here. Uh, <laughs> oh, definitely on the part of the audience. Uh, I can I can attest to that. I was waiting for that. This is going to definitely be interesting. <laughs> um, yes, it has a connection to uh, the film we reviewed last week, which uh, I won't uh, state yet. But I will say it also has a connection to quite a few other films which we'll dive to in a minute uh but first all the rage 1999 or it's the rage 1999 <laughs> ian would you like to try to give the synopsis of this film all right um this movie was ahead of its time mm. uh even though it was in 1999 which is the same year as the columbine massacre so we're starting this off on a really cheery note this episode Whee! uh I didn't. I did not look up what month this came out in '99. Do you happen to know that? March fourth, according to the Ibidim. So this was this is just before Columbine by a couple of months. Yeah. Because uh, I because I'd never heard of this movie until you had suggested it. You know, mm -hmm. it put it on the list. I was like, oh, maybe this is one of those things that because it's because it's about gun violence and all this stuff. Maybe it came out and Columbine kind of swept it away. But no, this disappeared for completely other reasons, which are sort of a mystery to me, but I also have seen it, so I kind of understand why. It's an all-star cast. It is like the movie Crash mixed with the movie Movie 43. Uh, wow, okay. <laughs> I know yes. how you feel about this film. <laughs> it, is, it is an all-star big Hollywood morality tale that is mm. sort of told in these vignettes of interconnecting characters, but all of the vignettes are so ridiculous that they don't add up to much of anything except for some bizarre moralizing and an ending that you're just kind of scratching your head being like, is this a satire? Is it a mm. drama? Is it just really poorly executed attempts at both? Um, it opens with Joan Allen and Jeff Daniels playing a couple, uh, Ellen or Helen and Warren Harding. Uh, <laughs> she hears gunshots at five in the morning. Comes downstairs. To their you know fabulous house. 
finds hubby standing over a dead body with a smoking gun, uh, thus precipitates an investigation and allegations of infidelity because it turns out they both knew the people or person that had been shot. Um, you've got Andre Brower as a, uh, the lawyer for this couple and there's cops and a billionaire played by Gary Sinise and a punk played by Giovanni Ribisi, whose sister is Anna Paquin, who's a kleptomaniac. Josh Brolin plays the assistant to the billionaire who later gets demoted to being a video store clerk. And you've got this great scene where you've got Thanos renting movies to, um, rogue. Uh, <laughs> yes, we do. Don't we? <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh shit! I forgot that. Well, let's not forget about uh, 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 the the ice queens in this too, who was in X Men. January Jones. January Jones. Yes. <laughs> January. I forgot she was in this. I I remember seeing her name in the cast list, and then I remember seeing her because that's the girl from was it first. Plane? She- it's it was the town in Illinois. Gary Sinise said I met her in like it was like Plainwood yeah. or something like that. It was like a cross between two Illinois towns that don't exist or one doesn't exist. And they show her in this weird digital montage of his memories. Yes, but she doesn't show up again. I'm like, oh, she's gonna come back. No, that she was just like the face of the girl. They could have gotten a generic chick from the mall to be in this montage, but they got January Jones. <laughs> they got January. Well, it's her first. It was her first feature role. It's a, it's a bit part, but this was the first time she was actually in a oh. feature movie. You know, that makes sense now, because when I watch these older movies, I sometimes get the timeline mixed up, so this is... Yeah. Okay, you're right. She, no, hadn't, she wasn't January Jones back then. No, she she was... Uh, well, I mean... Uh, she was, but she, she was She was, but she wasn't the known... You know, not until Glass House and Bandits, and then, you know, she took off Baker Management and, you know, worked her way up to uh, Emma Frost... Uh, role mm-hmm. uh you know it, but yeah this is her very first role <laughs> wow i don't think she did she even say anything or she just the, no no she yeah. didn't even she just she's smiley happy uh flashback creepy scene so <laughs> oh we forgot that to mention the digital dog the um, digital dogs oh it's like it's like the dog from duck hunt crossed with really like cringy late 90s cgi yeah yeah, uh, yeah. So it's it's definitely in the vein of Crash, um, and, but not as serious. It, it it's funny because uh, three, not even two and a half months prior, two months prior, almost to the day, another film just like this came out in '99. Well, not like this, but where <laughs> you had an all star cast and it was crossing. Uh, stories. This kind of became just a little trend for a little while. Magnolia came out in January of the same year. Wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because I was I was curious when I was watching. This, I'm like, when Magnolia came out? Because I love I love Magnolia, and yeah. I searched and I'm like, holy shit! It came out two months prior to that. <laughs> Well, the 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 difference is, is Magnolia is Magnolia, and this is not Magnolia. Um, it it's weird because this does feel it it, it kind of does that thing where it makes fun of the very thing that the movie is trying to be, but because it makes fun of it, it thinks it lets itself off the hook. Um, there's a lot of kind of Tarantino referencing and bashing, specifically in the, the video store scene. Um, like, the, yeah, I know you don't like Pulp Fiction. 
but you're trying to be Pulp Fiction, uh, so you know, <laughs> fuck off. Uh, <laughs> so, how do you truly feel about that? <laughs> Well, the video store stuff was the only part that was interesting to me because, A, you've got Josh Brolin going from being essentially Bill Gates' assistant uh, to being a video store clerk. Um, but I also loved the 1999 flashback to the section of the video store reserved for widescreen VHS tapes. Yes. I don't know if you saw that yes, sign back did. there. Yes, I did. Oh, <laughs> I remember those conversations with people like, Oh, I hate the black bars. You, they cut off everything. I'm like, no, it's no. not no. how it works. It's, that's not how that works. You don't, you don't get it, do you? Uh, yeah, uh, it did bring up back some nostalgia. Although the part with the parts with the Gary Sinise, it's funny. I mean, it's just a step or two away from where we are on the internet now today. I mean, uh, it, it's what you were saying with this is the. For what it's trying to portray, it, in some respects, it was ahead of its time, and it could apply to today. If you took some of the themes and the core stuff they were doing, uh, it, it could still apply to today, which is a good and bad statement on society. Uh, but <laughs> that was the only problem. I enjoyed this film. I thought the film actually, it's it starts off weird. And then it's like it, it starts to get its feet underneath it when you start to get into the crossing paths of the characters in like the second, you know, the the middle third of the film. It was really getting solid. But then it 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 kind of uh, stumbles on the landing in the end. So it was like you are right in that this film I and I can see now on one hand, it's a shame that it's not talked about more. But on the other hand. I can see why as well, because it doesn't, it's trying to establish an identity, but it doesn't because the tone in the beginning, especially the dialogue between, I mean, first off, it's great seeing Daniels as a asshole because he usually mm. plays the really nice guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, he, he, or, you know, the guy that you really want to pull behind and here, no, his character, you're totally supposed to not like, he's just, he's just a total ass, but there's some dialogue between him and Joan Allen right at the beginning of the film that I'm like, wait, is this supposed to be comedic? And it's even in IMDB genre of comedic. Yeah, but the subject matter, especially the credit sequence in the beginning with the Malcolm in the Middle text, um, is a little more serious. So I'm like, okay, what's your point here? <laughs> yeah, I, it's I. You know, I'm glad you enjoyed the movie. I I'm glad that I watched it. I think it's mm -hmm. fascinating because I I can think of few things, few movies like it that I've seen, um, but. I thought that it was just a mess from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got, first of all, I didn't really understand where this took place until I, I saw the green mill and I'm like, Oh shit, this is a Chicago movie. Um, <laughs> they've got some exteriors, but yeah. it just didn't, but you know, any city is a big place. Mm -hmm. And I thought there's like maybe 12 main characters in this film. Yeah. given all the little sub stories you've got, but they all know each other and they're all constantly running into each other. And everybody in this circle has some kind of like major life event or plot going on. Um, it's not, 
as spread out as something like uh, like Pulp Fiction, where you're kind mm. of drawn into these disparate worlds. It's like you could imagine most of these people having dinner together, like you know, two weeks earlier. But you know, you've got the uh, the lawyer who is hiding the fact that he's gay, and he's you know with David Schwimmer, who's also selling clothes to Joan Allen or something. Yeah, uh, and then you've got the the two, the two cops who are involved, and they also run into Giovanni Ribisi, who's the brother of the the shoplifting or the the klepto girl. It's just all too convenient. It's too soapboxy. And it's too conveniently spaced out within this, you know, hour and a half. I'm like, if this had been just a series of short films not connected, I would have bought it. But I think it still would have been pretty poorly written and remarkable only for the fact that all this high profile talent signed up to be in it. Well, and and that's what surprised me was just the amount of uh, even for the, the small roles, the amount of talent that's in this film. You know, I mean, Schwimmer, yeah, regardless of, you know, how you might think of the stories written Schwimmer playing a character you know coming off his friends hype is in a role that you're just like what that's Schwimmer you know I mean mm-hmm. you know just like I said Daniels is in this role that you're not used to seeing him in um and Gary Sinise holy crap playing a crazy uh Bill Gates crossed with uh, Howard Hughes type of character um uh, you know um I, that is the right guy, right? Howard Hughes. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, P, P under the bed. Yeah, yeah P under yeah, the bed guy. Yeah. You know, kind of crossed with that guy. I thought it was interesting, and I found that very, very entertaining. I found it entertaining with the lives crossed. It's a problem that you run into with a lot of these films, though. Um, you know, with the cross stories. It and it's again with this one i think it's just because its identity isn't ever really fully established of what you're going for here or like you said what real town you're in it's a little harder to buy that their paths are crossing if they establish somehow that they're all in the same neighborhood like the law firm is just you know not that far away from you know uh, joan allen's neighborhood it, it, you know it if it took place all up in in one area of Chicago, like the upper class part, but then you get the Giovanni Ribisi and Anna Paquin storyline, and that's more in the inner city of, um, at least that's the way it felt in, in, in uh, you know Chicago. It's um, it, it was it's hard with an identity, you know. Whereas Magnolia establishes an identity, and you get what they're going for right away. This one is a little bit all over the map and maybe that's because the way my brain works i didn't mind that at much i think i was enjoying the performances and seeing actors who i'm not used to in roles like this play roles like this like josh brolin playing the 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 assistant turned video store clerk who had aspirations of being a movie director and falls in love with the kleptomaniac oh (laughs) and that's you know that's the thing is like it's it's kind of a cute idea for a little short film mm-hmm. where it's, you know, almost like a Hollywood dinner theater. Like imagine an improv comedy theater where you've got the audiences full of celebrities. You've got an MC on stage saying, OK, I'm going to dr- pick two random celebrities out of the audience, get them up on stage. We're going to draw a name from a hat or you know, two professions from a hat. Uh, Anna Paquin, welcome up. Uh, you're going to be a kleptomaniac. Josh Brolin, you're going to be an ex-billionaire assistant who now works at a video store. Go! That's cute. 
It's not <laughs> part of an actual film, especially if ostensibly this movie is trying to say something about gun violence. Uh, it's too ham-handed and like mixed with the newspaper clippings plus those cute little title cards at the end that are kind of lending a comedic bent to gun problems, but you can tell that the director really has a problem with guns and thinks that society has gone mad. You need to really be like Stanley Kubrick to work that level of satire into a dark comedy drama. Otherwise, it just all comes off as confusing. Um, and as far as the story goes, I don't understand what a closeted, semi-closeted gay attorney is doing with an underage teenage kleptomaniac who they're trying to sleep together because he's having a midlife crisis and she's obsessed with taking all of his money. What the hell does that have to do with gun violence or the main <laughs> plot that opens up the film? There's this, there's like five of those kind of nonsensical little stories woven into this plot that I was watching it thinking these actors, if they had been in just a straightforward conventional script, I would have been much more interested mm -hmm. than this. Let's throw this at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see that. It, and it, and that's where it falls back to, uh, I fully acknowledge it, it loses its identity. I mean, if you read the description of it and you look at what it's supposed to be saying, and especially the opening credit sequence, you're like, okay, I'm preparing myself for a bit of a hand-fisted, uh, you know, uh, vignettes tied together, all dealing with gun control. Mm -hmm. And then it opens, yeah, with Daniels killing his uh, partner, who we find out later he thinks is sleeping with his wife, which Daniels is a controlling, abusive husband later on, we find out. But you don't need know that in the beginning. Here he shot him, and you're like, oh, okay, we're starting right off the bat. All right. And now he's going to get you know pulled in by the cops, and they're going to question him. Was he defending himself or not? But then you throw in some Quentin, for lack of a better term, Tarantino-esque type dialogue after he shoots him, like I said, with Joan Allen, and then even later when he's getting interrogated by the cops, you, you're right about the Tarantino-type influence on this film. It's there. It, it's kind of trying to take that approach. And then you're like, oh, okay. And then, uh, as I mentioned, the characters started to grow on me. I like this because it kind of, even though it tapered away a bit from the, it, it tapered away from the gun control, Mm -hmm. I was enjoying the story a bit. So I was like, okay, I can kind of get into it, you know, Anna. And then we get this weird scene where David Schwimmer's character, we find out is the lover of uh, the lawyer. Um, and he is, he is, uh, got mental problems and he gets a gun mm -hmm. and then he buys the lawyer, the gun. And then he do this weird scene where they're kind of intimate together both holding guns and i'm like well that was kind of random <laughs> you know? yeah I, and, and I satirical like, and satirical like you said i don't even know if it was satirical i feel like it was supposed to be like uh almost a performative art like the seduction of guns um you know make it into a literal seduction piece but i'm like hey, you know just just get on with it, please. Well, uh. <laughs> well, and the seduction part would have worked had you had a little more buildup, but it seemed, even for being a crazy lover that David Schwimmer was playing, which I, I actually enjoyed him in the character, at the same time, I'm like, it, it really comes out of, 
you know, kind of left field that th- this is the jump you make. I mean, even though he is crazy, this still is the jump you make. Uh, to yeah, to, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I, yes, exactly. Plus, going back to Schwimmer, I really like him. You know, as an actor, mm-hmm. uh, even though he got pigeonholed as the as the Ross role. Yeah. But we talked about another movie that came out right around the same time, Apt Pupil, a few episodes ago, which I thought he was really good mm-hmm. uh, in that, uh, you know, with very little screen time. But this movie solidified it for me. It felt like he was in the middle of doing Friends while all this was going on. And sort of like what happens with we used to call them the uh, the Disney kids, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, especially the teenage girls who, as they got more mature, they would go to these, you know, roles that are, you know, they're playing the bad girl or the ones who are having sexual awakenings, you know, those right. kinds of movies where they're showing more skin and all that mm-hmm. to prove that they're adults. Uh, this kind of felt like the you know, (laughs) middle-aged white guy version of that, you know, like I can be more than just the boring guy at the coffee shop. I can be, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the suspicious school teacher. I can be the, you know, look, I can play a gay guy who's got mental issues. It's just, you know, I, I felt like it, I felt like I was watching David Schwimmer experiment (laughs) instead of a character that I was supposed to get invested in. And there's a, a number of other characters, too, uh, as we've mentioned prior, that are experimenting in here. It's funny you brought that up, because uh, here at 52 Degrees KB, uh, <laughs> the connection that I had here between this film and the last film was, uh, well, Giovanni Ribisi. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. He was in the last one in this one. Josh Brolin was in the last one in this one as well. But I didn't use Josh Brolin because I'm using him. Uh, yeah, I, elsewhere. Um, and then, but you got David Schwimmer, who was an apt pupil, which we covered in here. Joan Allen was in The Crucible, and she's in this That's right. film. This film has four actors in films we've already covered. <laughs> <laughs> My God, I had forgotten it, and this was this is a testament to her. I had forgotten that she was in The Crucible. Yeah, um, yeah. I I love Joan Allen. I loved her in The Crucible. I didn't love her in this, and that's that's another strike against this movie. Is this movie made me not appreciate Joan Allen? <laughs> well, um, have you just quick sidebar? Yeah. Have you done other? films in this series that we might have not talked about that had two actors carry over from one week to the next because i was like damn this is this has both brolin and rabisi and that's pretty I, cool i did have a couple others and again uh usually i use those and i'm maybe showing my hand here too quickly but that's okay actually i'm not so um <laughs> uh, i'm not using josh brolin in this uh, connection, but yes, there are some films previous. Uh, they don't come to hand right I, idea right now, but there were a couple others where we did have two actors from the previous film in it, or or you know two two films away. But but that's because I I pigeonholed myself really badly between our uh, bacon film in uh, July and bacon film in August because I only had a year and a half to play with. So <laughs> <laughs> and I did it though. By God, folks, I. Did it. Um, uh, it ended up this one. And I wanted to do this film because it, it just, with this cast, I'm like, how did I not watch this? And now you can kind of see where they probably did not put... It's got the star power. It needs the better script to really, like I said, the Magnolia one did it better. Uh, there's people that love Robert Altman's shortcuts. I dis- I did not like shortcuts. Um, shortcuts nearly put me to sleep at three plus hours. 
here, here's a confession. This yeah. is blasphemy. I know. I have never seen shortcuts. You're not missing um, much, in my personal I, opinion. But uh, <laughs> well, in fairness, Mark, you are the only person I've ever talked to who has not sung the praises of shortcuts <sighs> to high heaven. Now, I'm not saying that means anything because I have not seen the movie, but it's very interesting that I've met, and it's it's refreshing because whenever you know, whenever I bring up shortcuts or it comes up in conversation, it's like shortcuts. You know, it's like this reverent mm-hmm. tone. You know? I mean, You're like screw shortcuts. <laughs> I mean, it was all right, but first off, it was two VHS tapes, which <laughs> you know. I'm not kidding. I rented it. It was two VHS tapes. So, you know, you had to pay the extra money for the second tape. Come on. Really? Were they they widescreen? Um, uh, It was widescreen, though, I think. Oh, good. I think they were widescreen. But Shortcuts went on too long, and that was packed with almost too many characters. You know, Mm -hmm. it was one of those where I know it was done by Altman, and it has all these big names, and it's, you know, uh, again, another cross-storyline type film. Uh, but for me, I, I got kind of bored with it. I mean, you know, there was a scene, uh, I forgot who it was, it's Jeff Goldblum and, uh, I forgot, oh, the actress who was in it, but there's a scene where she gets something on her pants. So she takes her pants off. She's totally bottomless and she's ironing or cleaning her pants. And I'm just like, I kind of get what you're going for, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, I mean, you know, I mean, and there's other parts in, in shortcuts too that are like that. And this one, at least, uh, you know, uh, all the rage, it's the rage, whatever you want to call it, uh, is only 90, uh, just maybe a, a shy of a hundred minutes. Um, so it doesn't stretch things out too long though, from what it sounds like what you're saying, Ian, you almost would have liked them to take more time so they could maybe, uh, get some more cohesion with their story or spend some time or at least a little more setup. Uh, would you think that maybe giving it a little more runtime to give them some room to let these things breathe a little more and maybe ground its identity? Would that have helped you at all or, or no? You know, I don't know if more runtime is the, is the answer. I think because this movie felt very long to me, mm-hmm. mostly because it kept jumping from thing to thing to thing. And all those things were sort of nonsensical and I didn't quite understand what the point was. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is a movie in here somewhere, but you just take off some of the nonsense and come up with something that's really a nice twisty spaghetti plot. And you've really got something, mm-hmm. um, you've got all this random stuff like we're going to have a scene where Joan Allen and Gary Sinise are eating spaghetti with chopsticks. Um, then they're playing battleship. Uh, well, <laughs> and then, and then surveillance footage pops up. Uh, it turns out Sinise has been, um, filming Joan Allen from like the time that she started working for him. Uh, and the dinner scene winds up on that surveillance footage, but when it gets played back, it is played back the exact footage that we watched in that scene. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like from the I camera know. angles, yeah. I'm like, what? Well, <laughs> well, uh, well. Part of that though was the fact that uh, it was how it was from his perspective. So a part of that, you know, may have you could have played it off as that, but no, I, I did notice that. But what I found interesting with the Joan Allen and the Gary Sinise stuff is they were playing well around with the idea with Joan Allen and uh, uh, with her character and with um, uh, Jeff Daniels' character, uh, Helen and Warren, uh, that they would wanted to try for children, but Warren didn't want it. Obviously, he's just the abusive 
husband. He wanted control over her and, you know, no attention, anything but to him. Um, so that's probably why they didn't have kids. But the relationship that ends up developing between Helen, who gets the job uh, to replace Josh Brolin's character uh, and take care of uh, the rich guy, uh, Morgan, uh, by Gary Sinise, she it almost felt like the way they played Morgan's character, he was childlike in many ways. And her looking for possibly not ever having been a mother almost falls into this kind of motherly role, not like overly motherly, but with the way she saw it. And whereas from his end, he was like, Oh my God, a woman's paying attention to me. And he's very immature and he kind of, you know, goes a different direction with his feelings towards her. And so it just felt like she was care. Here she came from a relationship that was abusive to where she wasn't really appreciative. And here she goes to a guy who pretty much relies on her for everything. So, you know, with her character, I think that's what I found fascinating with it was where she moves from one role to the other on two ends of the extreme almost, you know. And I, I think I would have appreciated that if we hadn't gotten that speech from her about how she had just come from, you know, one relationship that she was trapped in and right. she wasn't going to go into another one. She states that and then she proceeds to fall completely down that rabbit hole. Now, right. if this movie had just been about that relationship, I think there really could have been something there. You know, mm-hmm. does she realize that she's falling into this trap? How does she feel about it? How does he feel about it? But, you know, I, again, it just felt like Sinise getting an opportunity to play a really eccentric, drooling, kind of wide-eyed character who kind of goes against the type that we're expecting from him. And, you know, while that's fun, that's a, that's an improv comedy night and not something that belongs in a, in a complicated <laughs> morality tale about guns. And also, the thing that struck me as odd about the, the Jeff Daniels, Joan Allen dynamic is they don't have children. But they're very wealthy. Mm-hmm. He is a rich asshole, but he's also clearly a Republican now. Yes. In yes. and and explicitly so. Yes. And in a movie that just is a wash in stereotypes, you know what I know of wealthy Republicans is they love having children. They're not like mm-hmm. you know we're never going to have kids. They want to have kids to they build won't... a legacy, right? And you know and pass on their their genes and their wealth and also their values. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching this. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Like, are they? Is she infertile? No, it's just he never wanted to have kids. I'm like, well, that, actually, no. I think he was infertile because was he in- yeah he was infertile. Because uh, later on in the film, as uh, we're tapering off and things are coming down on him, that he may have actually, uh, which we finally realized was his true motivation at the beginning of the film of killing his partner because he suspected his partner of sleeping with his wife like he suspects every man in his Mm -hmm. wife's life. Um, There is a mention in there about a, a... process he actually goes off on his lawyer because there we get the two weeks later uh Mm. in here at one point uh after things initially go down and he's talking to his lawyer who is uh i loved andre uh, brower in this uh I, i like him as an actor anyway yeah. Um, and to see him in his, get to see him on the screen again was always fun. But he's playing the lawyer who's hiding that he's gay, uh, and he's discussing with Warren Hardy, Jeff Daniels' character, uh, of the divorce that's probably that is uh, the impending divorce that's coming. Uh, and they talk about 
children. And he says, yeah, I know that there's processes, you know, or things you could do, but I'm not going to have some, as he put it, folks, I'm quoting now, please. Uh, Mm -hmm. He mentions how he doesn't want an immigrant uh, fertilizing his child and him having a Mexican child or a half Mexican child. He doesn't want that. But at the same time, he can't father children, which is a contested point between him and his okay. wife. Okay. I, th- I think I may have missed that, that dialogue. I, I recall mm-hmm. what you're saying, but I, th- I don't remember if it, you the, checked the out context, by then. <laughs> the, no, the, the context just didn't register with me. Right. Was, along with most of the mm-hmm. things in this movie, I was like, what the hell are they even talking about? <laughs> but even if that's, said right i don't feel that that couple mm-hmm. uh would have let that stop them not saying that they you know can right. magically produce their own kid but you know adoption you know all this other these other mm-hmm. options i feel like they would have done everything they can to you know perpetuate their <laughs> their their bank account if nothing else yeah yeah i mean they they have the stereotype but they don't i mean there's i think you said it right they, they are just they the film's throwing ideas against the wall just to see what stick, because then you get this implied thing with Anna Paquin and Giovanni uh, Ravisi's character, uh, the brother-sister character, which is a bit creepy. Uh, yes. Relationship. And, and, and I honestly, th- I, I, you know what, it, for me, I, like I said, I enjoyed it. I can see why, uh, it was a kind of uh, tough for you to watch. I think in the hands of a even a different director, this film might have even done a bit better because my brain uh, likes to make uh, puddles, uh, lakes out of puddles, as we all know. <laughs> yeah, uh, but me look, too. You know, but looking at it, there is something interesting here to where you could see Anna Paquin's Annabelle character using her brother to as basically a weapon (laughs) um she knows what'll trigger him she makes up all these things about josh brolin's character who showed just the slightest bit of interest in her and so for her defense mechanism she sends her crazy ass brother after whoever um and there's just an interesting dynamic there that you can see her using her brother for this and she brings up the story earlier about someone called her a whore, and so her brother just shot the person, and she found joy in that. So not only is she a klepto, uh, but she's got a little bit of uh, psychoness to her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and- well, I, and I, I really did buy that they were brother and sister because, you know, we talked about Rabisi last week in the Mod Squad. I'm like... I, I didn't think he was good in that movie. Uh, he was Shakespearean in the Mod Squad compared to what he's doing in this movie <laughs> yes. because it's just he is completely off the rails. And going back to this idea of there's like six people in Chicago, according to this movie, uh, <laughs> there's a scene where Robert Forster is at the gun range and who's standing right next to him but David Schwimmer. And then who walks in but Giovanni Rabisi. I'm like, come on. And then he goes into the background into this stall and start shooting the gun like a wild man screaming you know lines from taxi driver from dirty harry from terminator 2 while he's doing target practice i'm supposed to believe that there's a retired cop played by robert forster who you know there's another tarantino connection yeah who sees this guy coming in with a gun and just like going off and he's not gonna you know perk up his ears and say uh, hey manager of the gun range you might want to check this kid out because i'm not convinced he's not going to just waltz back in here and shoot everybody in the face 
Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of surprised me that that wasn't a trigger for him. But at the same time, he seemed to be a little off in his approach as well. Like, uh, he talks about uh, guns, and in David Schumer's character interrogates him, uh, almost like coming on to him, asking him, did you shoot anyone? Did you, you know, uh, in this kind of interesting uh, dialogue they're having, and he asks... Schwimmer's character, the same thing he asked his uh, ex-partner, uh, played by Bokeem Woodbine, uh, uh, he asks him, you know, if you come into a room with your gun drawn and you find a guy standing over an underage girl and he's raping her, do you just shoot the guy or do you arrest him? And, you know, it's like his litmus test for whoever he meets. Mm. And yeah, you're right though. I mean, but so he's got something going on too. Like he may have done that. I think they were trying to imply that he did that. Um, it, it's almost like this film forgets that it wants to be about gun control. <laughs> it's like they write these characters, and the writer started writing some interesting characters, and then he's like, "Oh, I got to bring this back around to gun control." Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you've even got the the Godfather climax where, you know, you've got three of these intersecting stories coming to a head and like at the exact same moment, characters draw guns on yeah. other characters. Um, and, I, you know, honestly, the the that part really got to me. Mm-hmm. I was annoyed at the same time I was moved because I didn't give a shit about the Joan Allen, Gary Sinise thing because I figured – there's a good possibility that because the other two scenes that we were watching mm-hmm. uh, ended with people getting shot, then that one was going to end up with them, you know, her getting away. Right. I, I kind of telegraphed that. Not that I'm a super genius. Um, but with Brolin and Rabisi in that video store, mm-hmm. there was just something like Brolin was such a sweet character who got swept up in this life that he thought he was going to become the assistant to this billionaire. It's going to open up all these doors, but it turns out he was just babysitting this crazed, obsessive genius. So he seeks refuge in a video store. Again, like I feel like it's another Tarantino reference because he's like, I'm going to be a big director and like goes to you know work in a video shop. But to see his life ended that way so uh, carelessly, he was such a like an innocent, I felt bad for him. And then with Andre Brower, there was such that misunderstanding with uh, with the Schwimmer character that when he gets shot, it's that pop, 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 where you just see these like blood bursts like yeah. forming in his shirt. I, I don't remember if there was even sound or it was just like a musical score, but it was very beautifully done and 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 so disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's they almost ruin it with this weird gag, like you've got to call somebody, and Schwimmer just like calls his doctor. I'm like, eh, and, and, but um, yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's that's the one thing that got me with it. I enjoyed all these moments, and and for me, I I didn't mind the watch at all. But it it was very prevalent. This film wanted to be heavy, but not. And so you get yeah, like you said, this three uh, gun scene is actually it's a more dramatic moment in this film. And then, yeah, you get that break of character of Schwimmer calling his doctor. You're like, wait, oh, come on. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you had it. I mean, you're right. Rabisi and Brolin storyline. I mean, that was was 
brutal because this is just after uh, Tim, the uh, Andre Brower's character, Tim, who has been hanging out with Anna Paquin's character, Annabelle, in this hotel. Uh, they end up wrestling because he's got the gun that uh, his boyfriend gave him, Chris, and she ends up getting shot and killed. And so uh, the brother, played by Urbisi, he's heartbroken, but he knows of the video clerk. And so he's in the video store, and yeah, you're right, it's a serious scene. This is is a scene to where I think if they decided to just go straight drama, Mm -hmm. would really have some heavy and even more impact. Actually, all three of these scenes. But then you get David Schreiber, you get Tim calling his... Uh, Kim's boyfriend calling his his therapist, and you're like, wait, yeah. come on, it, you know, it was just like when uh, you know, uh, Chris David Schwimmer's character, uh, when he reveals the gun he got for his boyfriend, Tim, the lawyer, you know, he, he, the lawyer, he, Tim's against guns, but then all of a sudden, yeah, they're playing the seduction scene, but they do this thing where they're kind of, uh, you know, leaning next to each other and, and both hold their guns out as they're embracing one another. And I'm like, it's done almost in a, a satirical way. Almost, You know, I, the seduction part is there, but it also was like so played or directed in a way that you took it as trying to be humorous and funny and it doesn't really nail either one. Unfortunately, yeah. um, I'd almost wish I would have seen this film without the soapboxing gun part. Yeah, uh, I think you could have, um, like, take out the newspaper clippings, take out those cute titles at the, uh, the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the kind of where they now cards and just tone things down a bit. I think, you know, you let the audience walk away from it saying, oh, my God, that was about that was about guns. Right. Instead of instead of going in saying, oh, this is the movie about guns. Uh, you know, show me something I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, something that I had also written down that was kind of obnoxious, going back to the Pulp Fiction connection, is I don't know what the, you know, this stern guy thinks of Pulp Fiction if those mm-hmm. digs that he puts in the movie are legitimate or if he's just trying to be hip and say like, hey, this is, you know, Pulp Fiction was five years ago and there's still this zeitgeist, I'm going to get my jabs in. But when Anna Paquin gets you know, shot and we find out that she's been killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim decides he needs to get rid of the body. So he calls in a favor. You call him the uh, wolf. <laughs> look, there is <laughs> down to the composition of yes. the shot. Yes. You've got the, you know, have got the bedroom. There's like some kind of an event going on in the room that we can't quite see shot from the back, from the far end of the bed, a guy writing on a notepad, about, you know, coming to dispose of the body is like, I'll be there in two minutes. It's, you know, yeah. it's just short of him saying it's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. Ten. I'm like, you son of a bitch. Like, this is this is plagiarism. This isn't even parody. Well, um, yeah. You did catch the Reservoir Dogs poster in the background of the one shot, didn't you? Yeah, but I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure th- I'm pretty sure that was like uh, that was incidental. Uh, I, 
No, I think that was a contractual obligation. Every movie oh. from 1992 through 2000 had to have a Reservoir Dogs poster <laughs> somewhere in the background. If not Reservoir Dogs True Romance, right? Yes. It, yes. it had to have one of those two posters had to be in the back. We're not putting Pulp Fiction, but we're going to put True Romance or we're going to put Reservoir Dogs poster somewhere so you know you're in a video store or you know that someone really likes movies because people who really like movies had that poster in <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. Guilty as charged, sir. <laughs> I knew it. I, knew, I It's okay. I had the true romance one. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> You're a true diehard. I, I loved that movie, but I never had the poster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, now that we're talking about it even more, I think, and I, I'm not in the director's head at all, but I think what this might have been in some... Uh, very uh, careless way and very uh, maybe haphazardly thrown together way. Pulp Fiction, when it came out, I love Pulp Fiction. I I, I still love Pulp Fiction. But when it came out, it had the controversy of glorifying violence, glorifying guns. There's a lot of gun violence in Pulp Fiction. I'm wondering if, uh, not the director, but the writer, saw Pulp Fiction, saw the controversy, like, oh, man, this guy's glorifying guns, and tried to come up with the anti-Pulp Fiction in the form of all the rage. But he's obviously, and I know people hate him, but the guy can write scripts. He's no Tarantino. Mm. So it stumbles all over the place. But I'm wondering with, the, like you said, the shots, the references where they're talking about Honey Bunny and that uh, makes me wonder if this was supposed to be like the anti-Pulp Fiction film. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's, it's entirely possible. Um, yeah, I, I would say that if you come away from Pulp Fiction thinking that it glorifies violence, you know, you've got uh, some examination to do. I'm not, this isn't a personal attack or anything. No, but, no, I don't, you know, I don't, but I'm just saying that that, that was the big criticism for I, a while. Yes, and, and I, I, remember, I remember that, and even down to, you know, sometime before Pulp Fiction, it was like movies like Scarface and New Jack City. Like, oh my Commando. God, they there was fucking hmm? Commando. Now, Commando, you can make a case for because that was, you know, a cartoonish kind of yeah, a Schwarzenegger. I guess, yeah. I, yeah, I put Schwarzenegger and Stallone movies into that category. Sure. The problem is when you've got movies like Scarface, like New Jack City, like Pulp Fiction. Right. Yes, they are cool movies. Yes, they are movies that do have a lot of gun violence, but they are specifically movies that show the consequences of that mm-hmm. gun violence. Right. So you can't walk out of a movie like Pulp Fiction or even Scarface, even though there's that cool climactic bit where Tony Montana is taking all those people out. He gets horribly murdered, and you yes. see the effects that his weaponry does on the people who are attacking him mm-hmm. and what drugs and violence in the life of crime does to a person and, and their relationships. So if you're like, I'm going to write the anti-pulp fiction movie, uh, the anti-pulp fiction movie is a movie that glorifies violence for violence sake, <laughs> uh, ironically. And, and to have a movie like this, that if it's called all the rage and it's supposed to be about the way people in society think about guns, then you need to make that movie. Right. Don't make a movie that, you know, make a movie about average people and their encounters with, you know, gun violence. Maybe heighten it a bit for dramatic tension. We've got all these plots, like, again, what does a closeted gay lawyer having sex with a 15-year-old girl 
in a hotel room and he ends up shooting her and then hiding the body through an illicit connection. What does that have to do with everyday fears about guns? Mm-hmm. What does that to, what does that have to do with guns? Period. It could have been a situation like uh, very bad things where he fucks her to death in the bathroom accidentally and then has to get rid of the body. Like the weapon of death is almost incidental in this. Uh, it's an afterthought. Yeah, and it may sound weird, but if you're gonna do a movie like this where you do have the 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 ham fisted scenes, go all in. Go go. Mm. F- Full ham-fisted. Have mm-hmm. every one of these stories not have the guns be incidental or become the... Have them be the main thing, which is what, going into this film, I kind of was expecting and building myself up for uh, because of the way it's described. Handguns figure into the intertwined lives of nine people. You know, I'm like sitting there going, okay, this is a... Obviously, a Hollywood thing of speaking out against gun control. Movies do propaganda all the time. I I love the cast, so I'm like, okay, I'm in. Where's this story? But instead, you've got regular stories that have guns in them, and it doesn't try to really make a statement about the guns. At least, if it is, it's very muddled. It's like they're, they're... not going all in they didn't want to go all in so we're going to give it a little bit of a comical twist as well and more people will be accepting it and i'm like sitting here going with this cast go all in go full serious freaking you know mike moore standing ovation throwing (laughs) roses at the screen type of you know type of approach don't do it haphazardly like this because you end up losing your identity and you end up getting like what you ended up having, which is what was the point? (laughs) Yeah. Look, there's, you've seen, you've seen boogie nights, right? Oh yeah. Oh God. Yeah. A number of times. I love boogie nights. Yeah. There is a, I don't think it's a 10 minute, it's probably a five minute sequence that deals with the problems of guns uh, more mm-hmm. effectively than this whole hour and a half. And it's when Don, Don Cheadle walks into that gun, sh- the, the donut shop Yeah, uh, that gets held up. And then there's that guy who pulls out his gun, who thinks he's going to be the hero. And Cheadle's like kind of motioning to him like, no. And it, you know, mm-hmm. everything goes off and like everybody dies except for the one person who ends up covered in brains. And it's, it's not funny. Mm-hmm. It's, a weird situation but it's also horrifying and you understand you know what would have possibly happened if the guy who had the gun just decided not to brandish it and be the hero it's possible that the clerk would have just given the the dude with the the stick up man the money and the guy would have just ran out of there um but it's it's a complicated issue but again Paul Thomas Anderson wasn't setting out to make an anti-gun movie, but he did make a beautiful statement just by dropping this incidental scene into this bigger tapestry. Yeah, and also God bless him for using You've Got the Touch from the uh, Stan Bush (laughs) classics Transformers the movie and having Marky Wahlberg sing it horribly. God bless him. That was a a scene that will stick in my brain forever. I love that scene. Uh, I, that got such a pop for me when I when he sings. You got that? I'm like, oh my god! I'm like, five people in the audience is going to get this reference. Only I five. I was going to ask, did you see that in the theater? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, it, I did too. And and at that moment, I burst out laughing, and I was the only one in the theater who knew what the fuck was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I watched it. And I'm laughing, and other people are like, "I'm like, you never mind." They're like, "It's funny, but it's not that funny." I'm like, "No, it's that funny. It's that funny." Um, but but yeah, I mean. Again, I I enjoyed it for the performances, especially when I realized that we aren't going to get the uh, the the huge hammer, the serious, more serious approach to gun control on this. I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch it for the performances, and I I enjoyed it for that. But you know, Robert Forrester character, you could cut him out of here. Uh, he didn't add really anything um and that's that's sad because yeah, it's it robert is. forster like it is it, you know as much as i was lamenting the fact that last week when we were talking about mod squad dennis farina played the the tough old cop yeah you know with the heart of gold and he was only in the movie for five minutes i felt like robert forster he was in the movie the entire time and i kind of wish they'd taken him out after five minutes because he doesn't <laughs> fucking do anything except you know be wistful about safaris and ask people about these weird gun scenarios and i i honestly think especially that bar scene later on because as you mentioned chicago is a big town but this takes place in a three block radius <laughs> um we've got on the night that uh uh, uh Annabelle gets shot we have Tim meeting his client Warren Harding uh in a bar and then Giovanni Ribisi's a uh, Ribisi's character shows up and he sits next to them so you got those three guys in there you've got Robert Forrester's cop character in there who's badly tailing Warden and then Robert Forrester's uh, Tyler cop character his partner comes in so then you've got all these oh. characters in and I'm like I would have loved to see stories with these individuals. Now, granted, it actually, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this bar scene only because um, I enjoyed the f fact they had the three characters sitting there. You had Tim who had shot, you know, uh, uh, the, the sister of the guy sitting next to him. And you have the, his other guy on his other side who, who, blatantly killed his partner you know and then the two cops behind them i mean i i like the situation it was in and the way that seed was kind of directed again tarantino-esque i really think we're onto something here of this either making fun or being trying to be the anti-tarantino film or something because this scene as well in the bar is very reminiscent of a, a Tarantino execution, only he he's written it better. Where you have all these characters we followed all along, suddenly all in the same place. And I think that's the key: is that the idea that Tarantino, if he had done a scene like this, would have had it in the climax. But these characters would not have interacted in all these different ways throughout the film. Right to the point where you're asking, like, oh my god, do, there, do these folks only know each other in this giant city? They, they all would have ended up at the same bar. It would have been like this big, weird coincidence where the audience is like, oh, my God, he's going to that bar. Oh, my God, he's going to that bar. Instead of just like, yeah, they'd all end up at the same bar because apparently they just all hang out together all the time <laughs> because they don't know anybody else in Chicago. It's it's the cafe shot in Act 3 of Pulp Fiction. The, right. The, the, I mean, that's what I, you know, that's a prime example is every time I watched Pulp Fiction in the theater, which was three times, every time that scene and all it was was a shot of the exterior of the cafe got mm -hmm. a huge laugh. Yeah. Because of the way Tarantino had structured the story, 
with opening with Honey Bunny, we get the static shot of just the the cafe of you know uh, Jules and, and his partner going into the cafe. You're like, oh my god, that's the cafe. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and then you don't even see Honey Bunny that right away. You see, Ter- you know, you, you see Travolta and Jackson, and then all of a sudden you hear the Garcon coffee, and then you're just like, "Oh man, this is gonna." <laughs> like, yeah. And that's the way you build it up. Whereas here, this bar scene, everybody shows up, but you're like, "Well, this is an interesting coincidence," but it's not really set up very well. I did like the fact that. You had Rabisi saying, I'm going to take out these cops. And you had, <laughs> you had Tim and Warren just looking at him going, hey, knock yourself out, man. Yeah. You, you know, they're not stopping him. They're just like, go ahead, go pull a co- gun on the cops. And then when he stumbles to try to get his gun out, the two cops reach for their gun. And then, you know, Tim and Warren reach into their pockets for their gun. And I, I actually liked that moment. And I'm like, had you built this up a little bit differently? To this point, this would have had a lot more impact, but this is now played off as more like humor rather yeah. than tension. Yes, and also, I don't know what they would have booked him on, but I have a hard time believing that you can just go up to two cops who are sitting <laughs> in a bar and pretend to draw a gun and then just say, oops, I didn't have anything, what? and just like walk away. Well, the, I, one, the one guy's <laughs> retired, so you know he, he, he wouldn't be able to, but his partner was still active. So. His partner could have, yeah, 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 done it. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, like, honestly, if Stern had written Pulp Fiction, you would have had uh, a scene of, like, Honey Bunny going out to the dry cleaners and, you know, John Travolta's in there. Uh, and then, like, later on, Pumpkin goes to Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, Jules is going through the drive through <laughs> Like, they just – they would have been interacting with each other all day long and then yeah. finally just wound up at the, at the diner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've caught this, but – I saw Pulp Fiction uh, 13 times in the theater. Wow. Um, I, I This is when I was in high school. I had nothing else to do. Um, so on repeat watches, if you go back and watch the diner scene, the opening diner scene, and you listen to the soundtrack, you can hear Jules and um, Vincent talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there, there are a few booths over, which I didn't pick up, you know, until sure, I sure, watched yeah. the movie a bunch of times. So it's, it's just a cool little Easter egg to the Tarantino but, dropped in there. What's also interesting with that, uh, I know we're talking Pulp Fiction, but what's also interesting with the Pulp Fiction was the fact that the dialogue was different in this, you know, when we see Honey Bunny and Pumpkin mm. again versus the opening, uh, there, the way they exchange, you know, uh, the way she says, uh, uh, I'm going to execute every one of you motherfuckers. She actually says it differently in the second time we yeah. see her. And the f- um, and uh, the Garcon coffee is delivered differently, too. Right, right. Yeah. They're delivered differently. And that was because, like, I know people hate Tarantino. I know a lot of people hate I love his scripts. Yeah. And uh, here we have, again, what he was going for was... Pulp Fiction, just like a novel, a similar situation, but the reason the dialogue's differently is because this is a different story than what we had in the very opening. Even though it's mm. Honey, Bunny, and Pumpkin, it's being written... Uh, the way I am almost got picked up on it was that this is like another author <laughs> writing those characters, you know? In a way. You know, it, it's, it's just slightly different than the opening scene, and I think that is good because it shows you, okay, maybe these are just separate chapters with the same characters, you know, and, and you take it how you want. And plus it's the whole Tarantino, you know, 
second first third act put together <laughs> which every indie film afterwards was like you could do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i like that i think there's also something that you know it's almost a different perspective like if you get mm-hmm. uh, a whole bunch of people on a street and you know you hear someone yell something uh if you know, there's like a robbery or let's just say they're in that diner and you hear Mm -hmm. someone, oh, he said something weird like Garcon coffee. Everyone's going to tell the cop who comes to investigate, you know, he said Garcon coffee or he said Garcon Mm -hmm. coffee, you know, just different pronunciations from different eyewitness accounts. So I feel like there could have been something like that going on there uh, with the different perspectives. And, And bringing it around to this film, this is where I was kind of going. When you do these cross stories like this and i i am no expert i know internet you should play off as being an expert no i'm no expert but (laughs) i've watched many of these actually some that i didn't even realize were going to be that type of film like this one um you need a perspective the film being told from a specific perspective and i think really that's what we're missing even with the various stories we're never getting either enough time or it's just not written well enough to for us to realize where the story is being told from a sp- specific perspective. It's just more of like these scenes happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, with Pulp Fiction, it's told from, you know, it's told from Vincent's perspective or Vincent and Jules perspective. Everything we see is, is kind of the way they see it. You know, Bruce Willis's story is is all told through him. You you have that character, you know. Um and in here, even with these intertwining stories, none of these characters you feel like you're with them. You're watching them. Yeah. But it's not engaging the audience enough with at least one of these characters for you to really say I'm there with them. Whereas with like Magnolia, we mentioned, and I'll, I'll even say it shortcuts. Um, <laughs> um, and you, you know, a, a crash that there's a character or whatnot that you realize you're seeing these things from their perspective. You're attached to that one. And this one's lacking that focus. It's like, it's, it's got the smear of watercolors, but that's all you've got. There's no, it, it, you, you're, it could have it there, but it's not there. And, and that's what's missing. So you have this element missing. And for these films, if you don't have that, it can, for many like you, I think, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like you, if you don't have that kind of element in there, you're just, you're just like, okay. I mean, that, that happened. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's the thing is like uh, perspective is very important because um, mm-hmm. if you don't have perspective, you've got kind of a farce, and that's <laughs> fine. You know, farces are cool, but you can't. It takes a very deft hand to have it both ways, right. where you're like, all of these characters are silly, and I don't give a crap about them. But oh wait, I'm supposed to because this is a message movie. I mean, mm-hmm. you'd have to go back to I mentioned Kubrick, but when you look at uh, Doctor Strangelove. Oh, yeah. It's a comedy, but it's also one of the darkest political <laughs> satires you will ever see. And it just, it's just, it's so deft that even the comedy feels serious. Yeah, and that's it. And in this one, the comedy doesn't feel serious. I, I, I think I, I can see their intentions and, and mad props for trying, but all I can see as we wrap it up here why this kind of got buried also. 
let's not, like you mentioned, the very serious event of the Columbine happened the same year. Um, I could see why it, it got buried because one dealing, it, it feels like it's being a, you know, commentary on guns, um, careless as it is. And so maybe that's partly the reason why it got buried. Plus you had Magnolia come out, which is actually a, a very stronger film than this one, but very mm. s- same vein. We we had a you know that series of films. I mean, we had Crash. I think came out around the same time, um, and and so you had these series of these these all star casts doing roles you may not be used to them in, and this one I think just it misses the mark. It, its intentions are the 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 intentions are are right, but its execution I think falls flat for what they were trying to go for. I still found entertainment in it, but if you're going into this thinking you're getting a kind of a Mike Moore type of statement on gun control, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> and if you think it's supposed to be some kind of uh, tongue tongue poke fun comedy at gun control, you're going to probably be sorely disappointed. <laughs> but if you want to watch people who are very talented just be on stage and play roles you're not used to them seeing them in, you'll probably enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's 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 a fascination uh, for sure, and that's that's pretty much the only level I can recommend this on. But I am recommend like if you can find it. I mean that's the thing is like right. this movie was so thoroughly buried that you can barely find it anywhere. Yeah, if you can find it, and I think we'll wrap it up tonight. Uh, just uh, yeah, I I would recommend it if you like all these actors in here getting them to see them on stage, interacting with each other. It's always fun watching talented people, especially actors, when you get these uh, uh, you know, ensemble casts and they actually get some screen time together with one another. Always entertaining just because of the talent, even if the story is weak, which in this case it is. Uh, so if you're looking for that and you like all of these people in it, I would recommend you watch this film just if you're looking for a film that is actually trying to make a statement on gun control, it is not just missing the mark. The gun just jams, and it doesn't even get a shot off. Ha! How's that for a gun pun? Oh. Well, anyways. plus plus the gun is full of blanks. Well, yeah, <laughs> the, the gun's full of blanks. <laughs> it jams, and even if it could fire, it'd be full of blanks. Uh, your final thought with this, film? would you recommend it? Uh I again, I would recommend it as a fascination. I would mm-hmm. not recommend it as like just temper your expectations. Uh, yeah. You might enjoy it on levels beyond just like, oh my god, I love Jeff Daniels and Gary Sinise, Nana Paquin, Andre Brower, but uh, chances are you might not too. There are little bits, as we mentioned, though, that do apply today, like Gary Sinise's character wanting mm. emails and such deleted because he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. He talks about social interaction, how the Internet is it. So there, there's little bits in here, too, that I found fascinating uh, and a couple of good lines. There's one line in particular, and, and uh, I enjoyed it. It was in the video store. Just happened to be when uh, the uh, um, Chris character, David Schwimmer, is there with um, Warren Harding and they're checking out a video. Uh, you know, you had uh, Josh Brolin there, his video clerk in there, and Anna Paquin's Annabelle shows up and uh, they find out that clerk has a crush on her. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it was uh, Warren Harding who said no. It was uh, it was uh, uh, 
it was David Schumer's character, Chris, said, uh, getting a virial, venereal disease just looking at her. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay, that that's a good line. I like that. I I'll give the script credit uh, as well, or the screenwriter, because yeah. there was a line that I thought was really good. It was earlier in the movie yeah. uh, where Jeff Daniels says, "A cheap whore may get you off, but never a cheap lawyer." <laughs> I I wrote that down. <laughs> that was the other line I was going to mention because yeah, there was there were those two kind of drop lines dropped where it was like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so, but I do also have in my notes a number of WTFs. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> if you can find it, it's a fascinating cinematic piece to watch these people go through these motions and, and do these things. But, yeah, it, it, I'm not going to say that it, 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 it is not successful in its apparent intention, uh, but it is interesting to watch at least once, you know, um, and then you don't have to watch it again, but, uh, you can <laughs> see where January Jones had her first screen screen, you know, appearance. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> so there you have it folks. It's the rage, all the rage. There's actually very little rage in the film. Um, <laughs> so there's that too. And, uh, yeah, uh, I hope that made you kind of at least seek it out. It's according to Amazon available on Amazon, though. It's not on streaming. You'd have to buy the DVD, which, uh, if you are look for it, the cheap on eBay, uh, there's copies of it looking for like three or four bucks. Um, you know, six bucks with shipping. So that, that not too bad. I mean, it's. You know, you, you could say, hey, I have this in my collection then, especially if you're <laughs> looking for early works of Anna Paquin as well. So we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Ian, as always. And now this is the chance where you get your license to shill. So please, sir, uh, shill away. Thank you. Um, you can find my stuff at Kicking the Seat. That's kickseat.com. Uh, I put up a podcast uh, about two to three times a week. I also have a YouTube channel, uh, Kicking the Seat. And um, yeah, lots of good stuff there too. So thank you. And uh, I'm also, I'm, I'm here every week uh, some, <laughs> somehow. <laughs> he somehow ends up here every week in the spoiler room. We're glad to have you. Uh, <laughs> no, this is, this is fun. This is one of my uh, highlights of my week. Well, well thank you. I appreciate it that quite a bit that uh means a lot and yeah i i don't know if i'm gonna uh, do something this scope next year this was this is a major undertaking but uh it's been fun seeing films uh that aren't necessarily uh, ones i normally would watch and ones that i've never heard of that i just pique my curiosity though next week we will be rolling the dice and it'll come up <laughs> snake eyes and how is that connected to it's the rage slash all the rage you're going to have to tune in next week to find out. So until then, we'll say a good night, everyone. Good night. Hey, all my friends out there looking for more spoiler room goodness? Then why don't you check out our brand new Patreon page, patreon.com slash specialmarkproductions, where you can get access to exclusive spoiler room episodes and a whole lot more. You can also find us on Facebook groups at SMPRD and on to Twitter at SpecialMarkPro. Let your voice be heard and let us know what you would like to see in the spoiler room, as well as just how we're doing in general. We appreciate your support and remember in the spoiler room, the conversation is fresh, but we do spoil the movies.